In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. In a, uh, in a haunting poem that is entitled uh, The Widow in the By Street, uh, John Macefield, the British poet, tells a story of dramatic agony. Um, it seems that a young man is about to be executed for crimes against the state. And in the crowd who have assembled to witness this event is his widowed mother, um, who is about to lose everything that she has in the world. When the trapdoor springs open and the noose has finished its job, this pathetic fig- figure crumples to the ground, sobbing uncontrollably. And those nearest to her hear her say something about broken things, too broke to mend. Now, to be sure, some of her anguish had to do with the past. She felt like she had been a failure as a mother. But the greater part of her anguish, I think, actually had to do with the future and the utter sense of hopelessness that had now enveloped her. It is a devastating thing to feel like there is nothing to look forward to. There is no prospect, no promise or possibility. Those words, too broke to mend, really can be awesome in their implications. And unless I'm mistaken, these represent the essence of the experience that we call despair. In other words, here is a past and here is a present but it is as though every door to the future has been slammed shut. It's spiritually suffocating. Emotionally is one of the most devastating things that can happen to a person. And yet I believe that every person, every adult certainly in this room, if you are honest, has had feelings like that. Either about your health, or maybe about a relationship, or a job, or Maybe it was a movement that you were at one point involved in, or perhaps a church that you belonged to. It seemed for all the world as if it was broken, but not just broken, too broke to mend. And because of that, you see, we need this morning to revisit that first Easter event, because more than anything else, It speaks to this issue, the agony of despair. It's it's interesting, the parallels between that first Easter morning and Macefield's poem. I mean, here, once again, is a young man who has been convicted of high crimes, crimes and who is about to be executed. And his mother is also a witness that day. And at 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, it was all over. In this case, of course, it was not a noose. It was the cruelty of a cross. And make no mistake about it, it was more than just the body of Jesus that died that afternoon. All the hopes of his friends and followers, they were absolutely dashed as he breathed his last. 
You need to remember, this was the one they thought God had sent to right their wrong, to throw out all of those evil Roman oppressors, to finally bring peace to their land. Can't you imagine them that day? Their heads cast down, going into hiding. Boy, were those three wasted years. And to think, but no. Wonder where I left my fishing nets. I worked with a counselor once who said to me very wisely, tell me how you anticipate. Tell me how you expect. And I will tell you how you live. You see, the truth is, there are such things as self-fulfilling prophecies. If I find myself thinking that a certain problem is beyond any solution, there's nothing that I can do, that perception causes me to shut down all of my creative energies. I give up in despair. And that very passivity helps to create the thing that I have predicted. The truth is, the way we feel about the future has a tremendous impact on how we live in the present. And that's why it is so important for us to gather this morning and celebrate the event of Easter. Because the theme that runs through this day, and indeed through this entire season, is the simple declaration that Easter, rightfully understood, radically affects the way you and I feel about the future, which means that Easter has implications not just for life after death, it has that, of course, but also for life after birth, life before death, for the living of these days. So revisit with me, if you will, that first Easter morning, and let's see if we can find there some of the hope for the future that is so needed today. So John's gospel tells us that that first Easter morning begins in darkness, and that is true not only physically, that is true figuratively. John's account focuses on one particular individual, a woman by the name of Mary from the little town of Magdala. Now, sometime before this, John, Jesus had done something absolutely wonderful for Mary. In the words of her vernacular, he had cast out seven demons from her psyche. Today, we would talk about neuroses or psychoses or phobias or obsessions. But no matter how you think about it, Jesus had done something wonderful for her. And as a result, she had a sense that the future was filled with promise. She believed Jesus was the chosen one. She believed he was the long-awaited Messiah, and she believed that he would eventually do for everyone what he had done for her. But then the realities of this Good Friday world that we live in went to work on all of those hopes and dreams. Opposition began to mount. It hardened as they approached the capital. The authorities became wary of this country bumpkin preacher and his teachings. And so one Thursday night, they moved in on him. They had him arrested. They went through the mockery of a trial. 
And by the middle of the afternoon the next day, Jesus had been effectively eliminated from the whole playing field of history. Mary was one of the few who remained loyal up until the very end. She was there outside of the city that Friday afternoon to watch him die. She followed as they took his body down from the cross and carried it to a borrowed tomb. And then she watched as they rolled that enormous stone over the door to the gravesite. And I think it's safe to say that when that stone settled in place, Mary's future became a thing of the past. All of the hopes that she had invested in Jesus now sealed in the silence of that tomb. The day after was the Sabbath. And I can imagine Mary just sort of going through the motions. Her heart wasn't really in any of it. The next day was Sunday. She awakened. Remember, in those days, that was the beginning of the work week. And how many of us have had that feeling after we have lost somebody precious to us, everyone else is ready to go back and begin life again? Everyone but you. It's like you're in, but you're not really of this world. And so she pulls herself somehow out of bed. She sets her sight on the tomb. She will go there to pay her respects, maybe complete the burial, maybe even convince herself that it all hasn't been just a terrible nightmare. So she shuffles through the darkness of grief and foreboding when suddenly a thought stops her right in her tracks. Who will roll away the stone? My God, I can't even do the one thing that is left for me to do. How stupid can I be? And I would suggest to you that that stone symbolized the way the face of the future had become for Mary. Despair is always the sense that the obstacles that are ahead of us are bigger than we are. We are in over our heads. Somehow the resources that you possess are simply not enough. Who will roll away the stone? And wouldn't you love to hear the answer to that question for all the stones in our lives and in our world? Every person of every age has to experience these burdens and these barriers that are too great. Even our little ones know about them. They are taunted or bullied when they are at school. They have to face these impossible expectations that are laid on them by adults, teachers, and coaches, and even well-intentioned parents. Or I think of some of our high school students about to graduate in just a few weeks. They're so excited about what will come next, but if they are honest, they are also so anxious as all of the safety netting of home and everything familiar is being ripped out from underneath them. Who will roll away the stone? Who will roll away the stone of our health system in this country? People get sick, and so they have to finish work. And then they lose their health insurance because they're not working anymore. Older adults worry, will I be able to pay the rent and the food and still afford all of these medications? 
Who will roll away the stone if politicians who think we will take away that system and not have another one to replace it? Who will roll away the stone of the person who is heading to the chemotherapy ward, who now has to face all of this in the future, or their families who have to take care of them, who need to help, but who also need to cry? Who will roll away the stone of the addict who knows that the door is closing behind her? She is so afraid, and yet she knows she has tried before and failed. Who will roll away the stone of terrorism? Today in Sri Lanka, 140 people killed in a church when they gather to worship. Mary stumbled through that pre-dawn darkness, not only having lost her relationship with Jesus, but having lost any sense that God is also active in history. She feels utterly alone. And who am I against such tremendous odds? She shuffles on, and lo and behold, she gets to the tomb, and she cannot believe her eyes. The stone that she was so anxious about has been rolled away. But I want you to notice something. Notice that Mary does not believe right away. Mary's despair for the future has colored the way she perceives the present, and so her grief has collapsed everything into one dimension. She decides that what has happened is that someone, some decadent human being, has stolen the body. So she runs from the tomb not to share good news, but bad news. Insult has been added to injury. Peter and John decide they have to see for themselves. Is this just the ramblings of another overly emotional female? But lo and behold, it is exactly as Mary has said. And then an interesting thing happens. John notices the way the linen wrappings have been left. If there had been grave robbers, they would surely have taken the corpse in the wrappings. Or if they had, for some reason, unwrapped them, the wrappings would have been strewn all over the place. John sees these neatly wrapped cloths. Everything in its place, good Presbyterians. <laughs> Decently and in order. And he realizes there has been a grave robbery but the thief is none other than God himself. But to show you just how individualized and how personal is the act of believing, three people saw the very same thing. Only one of them saw the deepest truth. You remember the old couplet? Two men looked through the self-same bars. One saw mud, the other stars. Every act of believing does have some part that we must play. It is not the, just, just the truth that is out there. It has to become truth for you and for me. The reality is we don't all come to this truth. We don't all come to believe in exactly the same way. The church would be so enhanced if we didn't pretend that everybody has to have this one particular experience or has to believe these five fundamentals. Some people do have an I saw the light experience. 
but other people have been born into the faith. They have never not believed. Some never doubt. For others, faith is always about asking and living the questions. Some get nurtured in the faith. Some, it's like they have to be hit between the eyes with a two-by-four. John saw and believed. Mary had to hear the same voice that had called those demons out of her, calling her by name. And that is when it dawned on Mary that history, yours and mine and ours, history is not just one-dimensional. God is also a participant. The one who created at the very beginning is never done creating and recreating. And if that ever dawns on you, if Easter ever dawns on you the way it did Mary, then the future becomes radically altered. If you just think one-dimensionally, if you believe deep down that the only thing at work in your life or in the world is what you do or what we do together, then in the middle of the night when you wake up playing that deadly game, you know the game, what if? What if the test results are positive? What if I lose my job? What if something happens to my partner or to my child? What if? What if? If you believe one-dimensionally, then that will surely drive you to despair. You will be halted right in your tracks. But those same what-ifs, in the context of Easter, his promise, tell the disciples, I am going before them, that makes all of those look different. Because with Jesus, no stone is too gigantic to move. It's like the future has received a facelift. It makes all the difference in the world, not only where you are going, but with whom. Max Licato tells a wonderful story about when he was a father. He was out for a walk with his little four-year-old daughter. And uh, for some reason, they took a different path than they normally would take. And they wound up in this neighborhood that she had never seen. And after some time, Max said to his daughter, do you know where you are? And without a trace of anxiety, she said, nope. He said, do you know how to get home from here? And once again, with no hesitation, she said, no. He said, well, are you afraid? And again, very nonchalantly shaking her head. Why, he said, are you not afraid? And this four-year-old looked him full in the face, and she said, because you're with me, and you know. And that is the gift of Easter. It is not primarily an empty tomb. It is a living presence. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Thou art with me. Tell the disciples he is going before them. That promise is as sure today as it was that first Easter morning. And when that truth dawns on you, you see life through a different set of lenses. As my old friend Zelda used to say, 
Ain't nothing going to happen today that me and my Jesus can't handle. Lousy grammar. Wonderful theology. Deep in my heart, the old spiritual says, deep in my heart, I do believe that we, you, me, and the God of Easter, we shall overcome. Amen.